welcome to another episode of The Killjoy Guide, the weekly left feminist podcast for the 99%. I am your host, Killjoy Meg. Please rate and review The Killjoy Guide on your favorite podcasting platforms. You can support the show through Anchor, that's anchor.fm slash killjoyguide, anchor.fm slash killjoyguide. Today, we are going to be talking to a very interesting person about why she's not a feminist. So I think we'll get a different perspective and really get into some of the issues with feminism and how we can also improve the feminist movement. So I would like to welcome Jessa Crispin to the show. Jessa is the editor and founder of the online magazine Book Select and the online literary journal Spolia. She is the author of The Dead Ladies Project and The Creative Tarot and has written for numerous leading publications, including The New York Times, The Guardian, The Washington Post, and others. And she's also the host of the new podcast, Public Intellectual. So please welcome to the show, Jessa Crispin. Hi, Jessa. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, so just getting So we all kind of have an idea of where did your radicalization for feminism begin? And what was the moment where you decided, I'm not calling myself a feminist anymore? Uh, Well, it began when I started working at um, an abortion clinic when I was 21. Um, And I started volunteering for a um, funding organization for women who, because of whatever particular financial situation that they were in, could not afford to pay for an abortion. So they needed some financial assistance, whether that be just sort of strategizing how to find money in time, or if it was actual loans or grants, we gave out um, grants to pretty much everybody who called in, uh, in real need. And so that's, that's where it began because I was working uh, with this pro-choice organization, Planned Parenthood, and I mm-hmm. saw the gap between the lived experiences of the women that I was talking to at night on the phone, uh, talking about, you know, um, getting pregnant because they were raped or um, being too afraid to ask their husband for money for the abortion or whatever, whatever dire situation that a lot of these women found themselves in. And then this sort of self-empowerment rhetoric that was coming out of the Planned Parenthood Planned Parenthood organization as a whole, both in sort of uh, a local level and in a national level. So that was my be- the beginning of my understanding that um, things aren't things aren't working out the way that they um, that the rhetoric or the sort of political campaigning or these very professional nonprofit organizations would have you believe that the lived experience of women was extremely separate from this rhetoric of you can do it and, you know, go, go ask your boss for a raise and pursue your self-empowerment and all these sorts of things. So, uh, that was, I think the first moment when I realized, um, that maybe sort of professional feminism or nonprofit feminism or, or just this sort of, um, power feminism, um, was not really even interested in, let alone aware of um, how women were living their lives. Yeah, I definitely tend to agree with you on that. And like, I've read your entire book. So let me bring up the, the cover of that book. Let's see if you can 
All right, so for those who can see this, this is the cover. It, the title is Why I Am Not a Feminist, A Feminist Manifesto by Jessica Crispin. So what was your impetus for wanting to write the book? Mostly because, so I do feel like this came out in a very different era. And I know that it's weird to talk about five years ago as being a different era, but it truly right, was yeah. when we're talking about feminism. Um, and so this was before the election of Trump. This was when still the left was essentially asleep under Barack Obama's administration. <laughs> and um, when you had a book come out about feminism or an op-ed in the New York Times about feminism, it was solely under the vein of like, you can be a feminist and still shave your legs. You can be a feminist and still watch this uh, pop singer who beats his wife and has been arrested <laughs> for uh, domestic right. violence. Uh, you know, all of these sorts of... Um, yeah, like that Jessica Valenti, Jill Filipovic type of rhetoric. Yeah. Yeah. Like extremely shallow, extremely uh, unintellectual. And again, very separate from the lived experience of women. Like what, what women actually needed in their lives and in their political representation and, and just how to like think through, uh, living in a, in a modern world basically. So, um, so I wrote it from that, from looking around and only seeing this very shallow engagement and this very sort of pop culture version of feminism that was being used primarily to sell commodities, whether those be, um, you know, sodas, or t-shirts or records or whatever it was, it was primarily used as a marketing strategy and not as any sort of sincere engagement with the issues. And it, I was very angry <laughs> all of the time. I was just like, all of the time I was angry. So yeah, that's why I wrote it, to stop being ang so angry. <laughs> and I totally get that anger. I mean, that's definitely an impetus for you know this podcast. Sure. And, you know, for me, even going back to grad school, like I went back to grad school because I was like, you know, this can't be what feminism actually is. I need to go in. <laughs> I need to research. I need to talk about it more. Like I really engaged to like, especially with like online feminism and Me Too and Yes All Women, because that was very much something that, you know, spurred, you know, a little bit of like I was a feminist all through college, but that's really the thing that really got me invested in feminism. Kind mm -hmm. of like the way that um, working in an abortion clinic was very was very radicalizing for you as well. It's like, and but just as I went further and further in, I was like, okay, that's not the feminism that attracts me. Like, what is this feminism versus the feminism that I'm looking at? And I started like calling that more like. Um, more like buzzword feminism. Like, mm -hmm. okay, you're you're using these terms as like buzzwords, things like intersectionality, empowerment. And I'm like, okay, do you even know what that means? Right, yeah. Like, have you actually engaged with any of the literature that actually talks about what that is supposed to mean? Because they really were, they were just kind of using them as buzzwords. I could especially see it in media, uh, especially like in TV shows, like, Oh, your toxic masculinity. Like, okay, do you even know what that means? Or are you just hearing it in media and regurgitating it? Right. And that's the thing that really frustrated me as well. And really maybe settle in. Like, okay, we have to actually talk about what feminism is versus what it isn't. And I loved how you ended your book of, 
You know, if you're not if you're not up for actually changing the system, if all you're interested in is being comfortable and rising through the ranks, just admit it. You're not a feminist. You're just using feminists. You're just using feminism for your own self-promotion. That's something that I absolutely hate. Yeah. Yeah. The imprecision of the language, I think, is one of the um, the more frustrating things right now. Um, in I think all spheres of sort of social justice movements, right? Mm-hmm. Like that people use these words that have been tossed around in academia or in the media that is never clearly defined and that everyone assumes that they know what it means. Everyone assumes that they know what toxic masculinity means. Everybody assumes mm-hmm. that they know what uh, patriarchy means, or what capitalism mm-hmm. means but Mm -hmm. they don't really have, if pressed, a working definition that they can sort of turn to. And so it gets substituted, right? It gets sort Mm -hmm. of thrown in for a lot of different things. And so a lot of things that people talk about with like, with feminism is is patriarchy. Like what they're describing is patriarchy just with women in it. Or, um, you know, so these sorts of things, it makes it very hard to have a conversation when you can't even have a shared understanding of what any of this means. And especially the word feminist, the way that it has been used to, um, you know, sell something, but also to argue that we should be bombing Afghanistan even more, the way that we've used it as a way to oppress trans women, the way that we've used it, you know, in all of these sort of horrific ways. Um, And so the way that it's been allowed to use it in that way makes the word essentially, I think, um, meaningless and useless and can often often be more divisive than um, as a as a way of understanding what we're talking about. Right. And I think you had a great way of really um, framing this as, you know, the fact that in order to make feminism more appealing to the masses, rather than actually going out and telling people, okay, this is what feminism is. They said, Mm -hmm. okay, we're going to make it as non-threatening as possible. Yeah. So, yes, you can still be feminism. You can still be a feminist and be fuckable. Guys, we are not like we're not a threat to you. Like, this is not about men. This is not about, you know, like, you know, I'll still shake my legs. I'll still put on makeup. I'm not going to be threatening to you. I'll fit feminism into my lifestyle. And, of course, when you fit feminism into your lifestyle, feminism is no longer a movement. Feminism is a brand. Yeah. And if it's something that you can take on and off, then is that really feminism? Mm-hmm. Now, and I think that one of the ways that you framed it, I'm trying to find it here, but I'm sure it'll probably take me a minute. But... The way that you framed it as basically toothless, and it's toothless for a specific reason, because yeah. it's basically designed, particularly the bourgeois feminism that we're talking about, is that it's it has to be as close to the status quo that people can assume it and take it on, but it's really for their own self-promotion and their own rise in social mobility. Yeah. Right. I mean, you see this with, I think, just about every social justice movement, right? At at various points, you have um, these struggles for acceptance and equality that are met with tolerance or Mm -hmm. met with, um, you know, barely barely veiled impatience Um, (laughs) that, yes, we'll consider your concerns. Thank you so much for filling out the survey kind of attitude. Mm -hmm. Um, And certainly you see that with um, 
the gay rights movement as well, the way that it's, you know, gays are tolerated um, in, in a lot of ways, but it's only as long as you act as heteronormative as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that we're still dealing with um, assimilation. We're still dealing with participation in an oppressive system, um, but we're using the language of liberation and in mm-hmm. a, and I think in a particularly kind of um, vile way in order to justify, um, you know, going after the spoils. Yeah, 100%. Like, as you say here, like, and because you mentioned that, like, choice feminism is very much an offshoot of white feminism, and I tend to agree with that. And you say, I say white feminism because many of the goals of mainstream feminism benefit middle-class white women and also because those are the women who become and remain the most visible representatives of the movement. Many of the ideas that were floated as potential goals for second wave feminism never found traction with the movement at large, because once you reached a certain level of money or fame, it would be more personally advantageous for you to fight for your own needs rather than contribute to a system that offered fairness for all. And I think that's a great way of framing it, is that it's, it has become so atomistic and so individualized that that mm-hmm. any way that you do feminism, like whether it's getting an abortion, whether it's not getting an abortion, oh, either way is a feminist act. You right. know, whether yeah. you're rising through the ranks or you're choosing motherhood, oh, either way it's a feminist act. It doesn't matter what you do because it's a woman doing it rather than a man, then it's feminist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and basically yeah. when when that's true, it means absolutely nothing because, okay, so what is not a feminist act? So, like, yeah, so basically, like, throughout feminist mm-hmm. history, there's been two goals. And I think that this is true of essentially, like, every social justice movement. You want liberty and you want equality. Um, mm-hmm. Liberty is much easier to give. Mm-hmm. And liberty is that freedom to buy liberation, right? It, it is, right. you are free to ascend the socioeconomic ranks. You are free to, um, you know, pursue wealth. You are free to, and if it doesn't work out for you, like that's oh, not well. really our problem. Mm-hmm. So that it's always been easier to argue for and to get from the state liberty than it has been equality. Um, equality as far as, um, you know, the the ability to have an equal playing field, which, you know, everybody talks about, but it's never existed in the history of mankind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that that's that's the final goal of this. But we're also distracted by the money that we are finally allowed to have um, and all the stuff we can buy with it. Um, you know, that's very exciting. Um, and it will be until, you know, the oceans take it away from us again. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, and that's kind of the insanity. I love the way that you frame that as like, we're able to basically buy our way out of oppression. Because yeah. that's basically what it's, it's become is, okay, how much money do you have? Even though you might still face a little bit of sexism, you might still face a little bit of racism, you're going to face a lot less if you have money and if you're accepted by the upper echelons of society. And so you are basically kind of buying your way out or at least being in a more comfortable version of at least maybe exploitation. You know, you might be a little bit more comfortable and 
you may begin to say, okay, maybe this isn't so bad because at least I can have, you know, that, that coffee. Maybe I can have that shirt. Maybe I can have that car, that apartment that I want and I'll be comfortable and that's okay. And so as long as I'm comfortable, then everything else, you know, it'll sort itself out. And they kind of lack that sense of urgency that the people in the working class are really feeling because the working class, we're the ones who are really suffering day to day of facing homelessness because we know mm -hmm. that the eviction moratorium will probably be up again soon. And people are going to have even more rent that they have to pay. Unemployment benefits just ended. We're probably about, we're going to be having student loans coming up soon. And so all these debts that people are accruing, they're going to be hurting so much more. So there's this lack of urgency from the the middle class and the upper class, whereas the rest of us are kind of like, uh, we need this now, please. <laughs> right. I mean, this is this is how it's always been. You have nothing and then you're given a little bit. And then all of a sudden you're concerned primarily not with making sure that everybody else gets a little bit, but just sort of increasing your own allotment. Um, and I think that it's not great that the left in the United States is primarily run by very expensively educated um, middle class and upper middle class urbanites. Like that's bad. <laughs> I mean, it's really yeah. bad because they, they don't know. They don't know yeah. and yet they, they feel free to... Um, volunteer to speak for people that have much less than them and who have much greater concerns, more urgent concerns, more material concerns than they do. Um, I think it's um, extremely uh, unuseful that we have continued to elect these particular, this particular population, this very small, privileged, and I hate the word privilege, but here it's mm -hmm. accurate, privileged um, segment of the population to speak for the oppressed. Um, mm -hmm. You know, all the mo more popular uh, leftist podcasters and speakers and spokespeople are mostly white men. There are some mm -hmm. exceptions, but those exceptions all went to Harvard or mm -hmm. some equivalent university system. And they're all sort of like ready for CNN. They've taken their media relations classes. <laughs> um, they, mm -hmm. they have no ideas of their own, but they're free to pilfer from everybody else um, and, and, you know, and speak it out in watered down ways and pretend like it's their own ideas. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that the left is not just stagnant because it's been asleep for so long, but because the hierarchies of how power works, how the world works, are still replicated within the left unquestioningly. How do you um, square that? that? How do you think that the left is really uh, perpetuating a lot of those same inequalities? How would you kind of... How would you picture that in your mind? Um, well, it's always it's always been the case. Um, you know, if you go back to the 1960s and mm -hmm. the sort of birth of a lot of these feminist organizations and I guess mm -hmm. the birth of second wave feminism, but not just feminism, but also uh, gay rights organizations, where which at the time were called homophile um, organizations, mm -hmm. um, black power organizations, you know, the, the they noticed at some point <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. that uh, the white men who were leading the leftist organizations were not taking their, their 
problem seriously. The, mm-hmm. the left men that ruled sort of working class organizations did not see childcare as an essential part of labor law. Mm-hmm. They did not see things like sexual harassment as being um, a uh, difficult thing that might uh, make employment mm-hmm. uh, hard for some people. Uh, rape or sexual violence, domestic violence, they certainly didn't want to talk about for reasons that you know we probably shouldn't talk about. Um, but eventually... <laughs> They had to splinter off because they needed to um, fight for their own representation and their own sort of existence uh, and their own needs. So feminists, and you know, there are a lot of good documenters of that era and the fights that were happening within the leftist movement at the time. Ellen Willis is very clear about this, uh, Shulamith Firestone. Mm-hmm. Um, and you saw other sort of or, uh, demographics and uh, civil rights groups splintering off for the same reason. White men were not seeing racial issues as really related to working class issues. They thought it was separate from class. It had nothing to do with it. That class was the only issue that actually mattered and, and mm-hmm. so on. Um, and so this splintering continues today because within every splinter, the hierarchy rep, you know, just replicated itself. Um, and part of that is just because, you know, who is the wider population going to listen to a poor woman mm-hmm. or a middle class woman who looks like them? Um, yeah. Who are they going to uh, listen to? Somebody who says that all they really want is, you know, access to these uh, few small things um, like bank accounts, <laughs> which <laughs> w- women didn't have. Um yeah. Or, or somebody who wants to uh, reorganize the entire uh, economic system of the entire world, right? So, um, yeah. of course, of course, this happens, and it's inevitable. But it's silly that we're still here, so many years later, replicating these same systems, and that when you are when you try to bring this to somebody's attention, you're called, you know. Um, jealous you're called uh, as if i want to lead this i don't want to read the lead the social i don't even want to have a socialist revolution thank you very much um but um uh i don't um you're, you're called jealous you're called um impatient you're called you know attention seeking um and still all the money all of the attention all of the power goes to this same small segment of people yeah, I mean, that's an excellent point. Um, and I think that, I mean, I'll, it's interesting that you pointed out uh, that, you know, the leaders tend to be of a certain class, a certain, you know, certain type of whiteness, a certain appeal to the masses. As you pointed out, even in your book, you know, Andrea Dworkin, who may not have been the most attractive woman, versus Gloria Steinem, who was a right. CIA-backed <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. She, yeah. 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 Andrea no, beautiful, Are you kidding me? Beautiful single, beautiful single white woman. Yeah. Who you know in her forties or whatever, and it was like, oh yeah, she's appealing. She can appeal to the masses. Andrew Jorkin, Betty Friedan, eh, not so much. <laughs> well, Betty Friedan was a nightmare. Yeah. Let's be honest. <laughs> I mean, true. she's a total nightmare of a human being. Um, so let's not like pretend like she oh, should no. have had any money. She got plenty of attention and power. Like that is true. She just didn't get the cold hard CIA cash. That <laughs> I mean, maybe she did. I don't know. But um, I mean, she she was definitely of the uh, please shut up, poor women. I'm trying to get 
power. Um, she was one of those feminists. So yeah. And she was Daddy free down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She was she was yeah. terrible. Like sh- yeah, she was basically shut up, poor women, shut up, lesbians. Yeah, she yeah. Not, she hated lesbians. She was not very yeah. inclusive at all. No. 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 Um, but definitely there I agree with you that there definitely seems to be a um at least a view of feminism that okay, this is now this is for my self-betterment. And like and the way that you frame it as like Basically, we have to like lean into capitalism. This is that lean in feminism. Uh, we have to lean into work, and maybe we can make a couple of tweaks to this to it. You know, maybe we can get a, a you know a childcare in in Facebook. Maybe we can get uh, a women's bathroom. But overall, like we have to lean into those patriarchal values. Right. And I love the way that you frame that. Like we have to lean into those patriarchal values. We have to take on all those things. Because if we don't, we're not going to rise up the ranks. Right. So they all go in with these good intentions of, you know what, once I get in there, I'm going to change the system. But in order to rise up the ranks, you have to take on all those patriarchal values. And therefore, you're really becoming the patriarch yourself. Yes. And that really reminds me so much of Mary Barfoot talking about escalator women. And basically how, you know, within capitalism, we're Dick's sister. And if we want what he has gotten then we are really upholding the system ourselves. And we're the ones who are just as much upholding patriarchy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes. <laughs> I'm agreeing with what I what I wrote. So, yeah, I don't know that, <laughs> now that I think about it. That's a little weird, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I just I like, though, that how, how you're kind of putting in a more, I don't know, more layman's terms, what Mary Barfoot said, um, in her work. So I think I, I really appreciate that because it is true though, because that's the thing about intersectionality. Like whenever people talk about intersectionality, you know, really what they're trying to say is, Oh, we need more diversity. Right. But really what we're saying is no, these systems are all interlocking. So patriarchy is capitalism. Patriarchy is white supremacy. Patriarchy is imperialism. Capitalism is imperialism. Capitalism is white supremacy. And it's all these things are all interconnected and you can't get rid of one without getting rid of the other. So we all should be working together to get rid of these systems. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think, I think that though very few people are sincere, yeah. <laughs> right? I let, honestly, I mean, even within mm-hmm. the left, um, even within the left in the United States, I think there are very few people who want true equality. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that mostly what they want is um, sort of liberal social welfare programs reinstalled, Mm -hmm. right? They want their student debt canceled. They want healthcare. Yeah. Um, And these are completely legitimate um, desires, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. they're almost silly. Um, I lived in Europe for five years and I still cry when I think about the health insurance that I no longer have um, since I came back to the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, like, um, if we're actually going to talk about removing white supremacy, if we're mm-hmm. going to talk about removing capitalism and patriarchy, um, I think that most of the people that argue these points don't sincerely want to live in a world where they can't have 
capitalism because it works so well for them. And again, I think that this is part of the problem of having a left that is essentially run by people who are really good at capitalism. Um, Mm. You know, we don't necessarily in the United States have a radical working class and we haven't for, you know, about a hundred years. I don't think that that's impossible to recreate, but I don't think it will happen necessarily within my lifetime. And I say that as somebody who grew up, you know, rural Kansas. Um, And I just, you know, it's just not appealing to anyone there. And the conversations that I have with family members and and people that I grew up with would, you know, I mean, it would just you would want to erase your mind after you after some of them. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but yeah, no, it's just like mm-hmm. um, it's not it's not on the agenda. And I think it's mm-hmm. a little childish to um, argue for something that you don't you don't want. Um, and I know that they do it for hyperbole and I know that there's like some fantastical version. And also I think that they know that it's impossible within their own lifetime. So why not argue for it? Um, but, uh, it does lead to, uh, what, um, Natalie Wynn of ContraPoints, uh, called, uh, revolutionary ideation, which is this idea that I'm not going to participate in the world as it exists until it changes itself for my own Mm -hmm. desires. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to participate in society until there is a revolution until my needs are met. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, that is quite childish. Okay. Um, I mean, so how do you view, um, because you definitely seem to have a, an opinion about, for instance, about like the way that people tend to idolize, certain politicians mm-hmm. and uh their rise in power yeah You're like oh that is uh, oh we need to see that as success we need to see that as you know improvement so i guess i'll ask point blank were you a hillary clinton supporter yes or no oh, good god no yeah. <laughs> are you freaking kidding me no <laughs> no <laughs> No. In what version <laughs> of the world could I possibly support Hillary Clinton for president? I mean, I voted for her, right? I mean, not in the fucking primary, but I voted for yeah. her against Trump because what else are you going to do? Like, you're just going to stab yourself in the chest 10 times? Like, no, you vote for you vote for the person who's least likely to start a nuclear war with North Korea. Like, you know, the, mm-hmm. when that's your baseline, you do what you can. Um but no, I mean, Hillary Clinton has always been a nightmare. I mean, you, you know, back yeah. back when they were bombing Kosovo for fuck's sake, you know, I mean, I'm old, so I remember that. <laughs> I'm sure you're not that much older than me. I'm only in my early 30s. <laughs> I'm I'm in my 40s, honey. <laughs> that's, not, that's not too bad. That's not too bad. <laughs> But I also do remember that as well. I remember like the fact that like Kosovo and um, like the Monica Lewinsky scandal were happening so close together. And I do remember yeah. like the videos of the bombings in Kosovo. So, but definitely well, the fact nice, that- right? Yeah. I mean, Hillary Clinton admitted in her memoir that that was how Bill got back into her good graces that she was like, don't mm-hmm. talk to me until you burnt until you bombed Serbia. Right. Like mm-hmm. that was literally her condition for forgiving him. Wow. It's in her memoir. She thinks that that's an okay. That's psychotic. Um, anyway, <laughs> psychotic. Sorry. I could talk about Hillary Clinton for too long and I don't want to, <laughs> um, but yeah, but, but no, it's, it's absolutely the truth though, that there's such a, 
people follow these politicians so closely and they become so latched on like they're a living history it becomes our living history. Like I've read yeah. so many, like there's one by Susan Bordeaux that uh, Katie Halper, someone that I follow uh, kind of critiqued, but she was basically like blaming millennial feminists for not voting for Hillary for basically everything that was going wrong. And like, okay, so you guys don't understand what sexism is because you didn't, because Hillary experienced all this sexism and she had to like deal with all of this. I'm like, Okay, no. you are latching way too close onto Hillary. Like, you don't understand that we have our own shit to deal with. Hillary will be fine. <laughs> Hillary's, yeah. she'll be fine. Like, okay, fine. She did not break that glass ceiling. But guess what? We don't want people breaking glass ceilings if everyone else is going to be left to clean up the glass and nothing else is going to change. And that's the big thing. It's like, if that's your goal, is to just rise in the ranks for your own self-importance, then that's not feminism. That's just that's just your own self-importance. That's all your own narcissism. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's um, there's something understandable in it in just that you know um, there definitely was coming out of the '80s and particularly this idea that. Um, right, of sort of corporate feminism, of the yeah. first, right? All we have to do is insert women into positions of power and then everything will become... Yeah, yeah the add women and stir, as Joan Scott likes to call it. And so everybody is like fighting to be the first of things, the first mm -hmm. CEO of a Fortune 500 company, the first female senator, the first female president, whatever. And there, there's so much emphasis put on that, that it really was, I think, maybe just deranging for an entire generation of women. Um, <laughs> Like the, you know, the, the late boomers, early Gen X, I think it really was, um, they, I think that feminism had failed them for so long that only symbols registered anymore, right? Like that the feminist project had been dormant for so long, so many decades as anything other than, um, uh, corporate feminism or sort of self-empowerment feminism, um, it wasn't going to, make abortions more uh, available or affordable. It wasn't going to give us universal health care. It wasn't going to give us child care. It wasn't going to, you know, all of these things have been sort of the disappointment of the feminist project for about 20 years it was really intense. Um, and there was this idea of like, okay, well then we have to build it ourselves. And so we have to get into positions of power and build it ourselves. It, it's just that it took people a really long time to notice that, hey, there are women in power and they haven't built this. Mm -hmm. Like, should we maybe take a different tactic maybe? But yeah, no, I think that, I think that it's sort of like understandable, but that doesn't necessarily make it right. And if you're still sort of touting that sort of, um, uh, that line in this day and age, I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's not really forgivable. <laughs> <laughs> Although, I mean, we've definitely seen the same thing, even surrounding like Kamala Harris. We've seen a lot oh, of the sure. same, the same narratives about, you know, around her, like this protection of Kamala Harris as, yeah. you know, the first vice female vice president, first black yeah. woman, a South Asian woman as yeah. vice president. We must, she must be protected at all costs. Yeah. And even on the left, like, like a lot of the, there are a lot of people who feel that same way about a lot of these, the squad members, like, Oh, they must be protected at all costs. It's like, okay, but what about holding people accountable for their actions? What about 
pressure, putting pressure yeah. on our politicians to actually work for us. But people get so upset when you're yelling at politicians. And it's really strange to me that people are so protective of their about of these political figures, treating them like celebrities. Well, it's, yeah, it's parasocial. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it, it's everything that we see that we uh, engage with through a screen is our own little private fantasy. We, we, we build these ideas of like relationships with these people that have nothing to do with the reality of who they are. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if people did it with Trump, people are of course going to do it with Kamala Harris. Um, you know, but, but if you actually sort of look at her record right. as a prosecutor, mm-hmm. like it's a nightmare. Um, and even that tour she did of Central America, where she like went around to all these various countries and was like, don't come, we will mm-hmm. send you back. Like that was <laughs> fucked up oh my um, god yes like, i was watching that just like oh my honey what are you doing <laughs> like, like you basically said the exact same thing as trump <laughs> you I said know, the exact same thing crazy but she's doing it in like a nice tone of voice she's not calling mm. them rapists as she does it and so yeah. she's like the compassionate uh politician but no i mean we are, these are our elected officials like they are accountable to mm. us of course you mm. you should complain if they're not doing their job i know that there's like mm-hmm. so much about the squad because it's like oh look representation but it's mm-hmm. really just a baseline of rep- representation they need to be doing so much more i mean my yeah. criticism of the squad is they're really good at representation and they're really good at rhetoric and they are not good at governance um i mean aoc might be the um exception to that she's actually a very very skillful politician um but as far which, as hmm? which actually i'm going to push back on that because it's actually been shown that she's the least effective congressperson well I think that there are various ways of looking at the effectiveness of a politician. Um, I think as far as um, coalition building and getting talking points into circulation and doing media relations, she's, mm-hmm. I think she's extremely good. It, I guess it's not that surprising to me that mm-hmm. she, that she would be rated the least effective. I'm mm-hmm. guessing that that's, that that's what are the, what are the grounds of that? Is that, through mm-hmm. um bills? i would have to look i would have to look it up i think uh, yeah but based on uh, like legislation yeah yeah i mean that's mm-hmm. not that surprising to me mm-hmm. but um but i think that she's i think that there are other ways of being a politician that are important um and i think that for the most part a lot of people just look at you know are they saying the right things on twitter mm-hmm. um and that's not that's not how you that's not yeah. how you govern yeah, and I feel like that's the thing I see a lot on in the left circles that I um, partic- that I participate in is that it's much more of like, okay, stop tweeting and get to work. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Twitter and, doesn't do anything. Like I know people right. think, it, think it does something. It doesn't do anything. It's just like a mm-hmm. vortex of that we just fill with our despair and our grief. <laughs> like, it's really it's really bad for everybody. I do tend to agree with that, though. I do see a lot of good coalition building that is happening in certain segments as we hold we just uh, organize a whole march against for Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. And what's and kind of speaking on Medicare for all and also, um, well, we can pivot a little bit towards like the, the Texas abortion ban, for instance. Sure. And that. Medicare for all, I mean, one of the things that's in there is that it would get rid of the Hyde Amendment. It would make abortion, you know, health care. 
And one of the things that I heard very recently that's kind of stunned me was that Planned Parenthood was against Medicare for all. And yes. one of the reasons that people put out was basically that would make them irrelevant. Yes. Yes. No. Um, yes, that is that is actually true. Um, Planned Parenthood is kind of a little bit of a nightmare, uh, especially in the last 10 to 15 years or so. Uh, they laid off a huge amount of their staff during the pandemic, wow. despite not being financially uh, required to and, and and things like that. Um, and there's been a lot of whistleblowers about the misappropriation of funds toward um uh, you know, the executives rather than in services uh, and, and these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So Planned Parenthood as an organization, it takes up a lot of space within the pro-choice community that it absolutely does not deserve. Mm -hmm. um, but it's really hard to say anything. I wrote a piece about Planned Parenthood and I got hate mail for a very long it. time. Um, and people, people feel really strongly about it because, you know, um, for the people who are, who work there, they work, they're working mm -hmm. there because, um, they believe in this strongly and they're willing to put their body on the line for it. Right. Um, right. And then the people who have needed their services are grateful for those services. And so maybe they don't want to question whether they could have been treated like a human being, um, while receiving those mm -hmm. services or whatever. So yeah, no, I, I get, I yeah. get it. I just think it's wrong. <laughs> right. Cause you even mentioned in your book that like something that Planned Parenthood and a lot of other abortion providers don't prevent, don't provide, I should say, is like counseling yeah. and other, other way, other services of being able to make sure that they are ready to have an abortion which I mean, you know, I'm obviously pro-abortion that I believe that every woman who wants to have an abortion should have one. Mm -hmm. But definitely, I think it was very interesting that you pointed out in your book that we need to have that conversation of, okay, what exactly does it mean to have an abortion? Should we be talking about like what women are actually experiencing when they go for having an abortion? And I feel like that's part of a more reproductive justice conversation rather than a pro-choice versus pro-life conversation that I feel like we should be having. Yeah. Because there's so much more than just being pro-life or pro-choice. Like there, like this is a nuanced conversation that needs to be had. Like women should be allowed to have babies that they want to have babies or not have babies that they don't want to have babies and, and be able to parent those children whenever they do have them. Because so many women have their children taken away from them. And that those yeah. are conversations we're not having. Yeah, I think that, you know, um, well, it's a, this, is, this is a very complicated issue, but I think that one of the things we need to keep in mind is that something around 80 to 90% of women who have an abortion either have children or will have children mm -hmm. in the future. And so this isn't um, a conversation about women who don't want to be mothers and women right. who are maternal, right? So... Um, the way that Planned Parenthood and other abortion organizations treat women in their care kind of cavalierly, um, I think is, uh, is, um, is, is bad, <laughs> but also mm -hmm. we, the, if a woman is in a situation that is difficult and complex and it's not mm -hmm. clear a hundred percent 
I need to terminate this pregnancy. If there is difficulty with the partner, if there's difficulty with finances, if there's difficulty with um, other aspects of their lives, Planned Parenthood only is really interested in the 100%. If you're there at 100%, great. Well, right. I was going to do a gallows humor. I've been told that my abortion <laughs> jokes are not funny. Um, but... Um, but, uh, but yeah, so what the right has done, and they've been mm -hmm. very smart about this, is to mm -hmm. create systems of care for vulnerable women. Um, mm -hmm. They create pregnancy houses where women can reside until they give birth. Um, they create counseling sessions, uh, which are, of course, skewed, getting mm -hmm. them to keep the child and, and so on. So keep the child, continue the pregnancy. Sorry. I've forgotten. Mm -hmm. I've forgotten every important, <laughs> uh, lingo, uh, thing that got hammered into me, uh, in over the years, uh, working there. Um, so what we really do is we, uh, if a woman needs taken care of the right is going to do that for them. Um, yeah. the left does not, we do not provide those services. I'm sorry, except for, for a fee. Um, so I think that that's really dangerous. And mm -hmm. I think that is part of the reason why we're kind of legislatively in the situation that we are. It's hard to advocate for abortion rights because we don't have good language for it. We don't have a good moral reasoning for it. We sort of believe in a lot for different various reasons. Um, mm -hmm that it should be made available, but we might be squeamish about it. Um, and so it's hard to just sort of full-throatedly say, abortions should be available for anybody who wants them um, and not need, because I mm -hmm. don't want to get into yeah. defining what that means. Um, I don't wanna have an argument about that, but anyone who wants them and right. allow every situation to be complicated. Um, and to take care of the people who are in these vulnerable places. Um, so yeah, I'm extremely passionate about this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and what's happening now is not in any way surprising. Um, and I, ha you know, it's, it's not in any way surprising and it would not be surprising to me if Roe goes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'm, I, I'm probably on the same train as you is that I, I wouldn't be surprised at all. It's, it's definitely unfortunate. And I do think that we need to be fighting back against it, but that's the thing that I'm seeing and particularly on the left is like, nobody has like a clear direction of how exactly to fight back against what the right is doing. And like, you kind of see like this deficit of understanding particularly for democratic leaders It's like, okay, you say that you believe in being pro-choice. You say that you, you know, believe in a woman's right to choose. What are you doing to support that? Right. What are you doing well, to support yeah. it? Yeah. We've, we've allowed, we've allowed this situation to create itself yeah. by not. Exactly. Asking. There's a lot of complicity. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, one of the reasons why I'm not surprised about this at all is because, um, you know, abortion is technically legal, but inaccessible for a huge pop parts of the population, right? Yes. Um, because of various restrictions that have been put in place, uh, you can have to travel to another state. It's extremely, it is so expensive to get an abortion. It is outrageously expensive to get an abortion. Mm -hmm. um, and 
that is never talked about, um, Mm -hmm. you know, except for with the Hyde Amendment. But like, that's also part of this like fantasy of like, oh, one day everything will be fixed and it'll be fine. Um, Once Mm -hmm. we we pass this bill, like, yeah, that's maybe a couple of years down the line. Um, If that, like, what are we going to do for these women in the meantime? What are we going to do for these women who for several years now haven't been able to um, access the care that they've required? yeah, I mean, I just think it's, I just think it's um, unconscionable what we've put into place and what we have allowed to happen with abortion rights in this country. Um, we essentially have abortion rights for the rich um, who can travel to another state or country uh, in order to obtain the services that they need and who can have a comfortable abortion as well because um, you don't get pain relief for the uh, for most of the sort of bottom dollar uh, abortions that you get, which are still six hundred, seven hundred dollars, um, and so you're you know, mm-hmm. so it sucks. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's just sort of monstrous what we've done to women. Yeah, one hundred percent. And like I said, it's just, this isn't just like a right wing thing. Like just as much, you know, the Democrats and the left have just as much complicity in it because they have not been doing anything to fight back or to make abortion more accessible or more. So yeah, I definitely agree with everything that you just said. And I do think that it's a conversation that we need to be having more and more and more because it's not being had. Um, But let's kind of steer back toward um, like someone that I also uh, read a lot is Sarah Banna Weiser. And she makes a great point about the fact that, you know, Feminism, certain types of feminism, like the lean-in feminism, the corporate feminism, neoliberal feminism, whatever you want to call it, the choice feminism. A lot of these feminisms get circulated because they become popular because there's something about them. It's because they're corporate friendly or they're self-affirming that make them more appealing to people. And so they're the ones that get circulated over feminisms that are more radical, as you mentioned, like the the Gloria Steinem's over the Andrea Dworkins mm-hmm. and, you know, those more radical, you know, maybe socialist feminisms or um, definitely for more radical feminisms that want to dismantle the system. They tend to be, you know, gloss over or just like, no, that doesn't exist. No, go away. You don't, you don't exist. Yeah. Let's hide you. Let's hide you behind a curtain. This is the only feminism that we want to represent is that choice feminism. Even a, a pro-choice feminism, you could say. Yeah. And do you do you see that as more of a a capitalist manifest manifestation of feminism? Um, I don't know if it's necessarily capitalism related. I think it's just. Um, I mean, I think it's very American. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess those two things are interlinked, interlinked <laughs> um, intimately. Um, mm-hmm. But certainly, I think it's, we don't have a great intellectual tradition um, in the United States. Uh, We have academia, and then we have everything else. Um, And these two things do not blend well. Um, There's a lot of resentment um, outside of academia for academia. There's a lot of fear that academia has for people who exist without, (laughs) without its borders. Um, so yeah, I think that part of this problem is like, how do you 
put ideas into circulation when there is mistrust, when there is no overlap or shared sense of humanity. Um, and so you'll get sort of, you know, watered down versions. You know, every once in a while you get like a radical op-ed, but often that is to, if anything, like um, uh, as, as an act of like, sabotage like i'm thinking about like the defund the police op-ed that was in the new york times mm -hmm. um about um yes we really do mean abolish the police mm -hmm. um and i'm so terrible with names and i'm very sorry that i don't remember uh, the name of uh, i think it's she goes by prison culture on twitter um and I only know Twitter handles. My brain is destroyed <laughs> by social media. Um, but but yeah, so she, she she published a piece in the New York an op-ed in the New York Times saying, "No, oh, we yeah. really do mean abolish the police." And that piece has been used uh, by the right um, in order to paint the left as total wackos. And I think that that was almost the New York Times's intention because the New York Times is very much not interested in defunding the police. It's not, re it's not interested in prison abolition. Um, I mean, have you, have you, like the guy who runs the daily, right? Mm -hmm. Like he took that picture and posted it on, on Twitter of like a homeless man in the subway and talking about like the downfall of society. It's just like, mm -hmm. leave that person alone. Like he's trying to right. say, fuck you. Um, so the New York Times is not interested in prison abolition. It's not interested in these ideas. And I think that it gave yeah. this idea and this, uh, and this writer a platform, um, as, as a sort of target practice. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that does happen, I think frequently, that doesn't mean that good hasn't come out of it. I think it has spread some of these ideas within leftist groups and given them a sort of vocabulary to talk about this, but it's, I think done as much harm as good and not harm mm -hmm. in the sense of like, you know, she did any harm, just harm in the sense of like, you know, the right uses this, um, against as a tool, now. yeah, as yeah. a weapon. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I tend to agree with that, but I mean, I definitely think that is important for us to definitely get that type of language out into the world because especially things like defund, like something that we've seen is that that has become more popular once people actually understand what that means of, you know, yeah, let's take away some of the, the police's resources and put it into back into the community, things like housing, education, things that actually prevent crime versus just arming the police against, you know, poor people. Right. Because poverty is very much something that is contributes to crime. And, but yeah. of course, you never see whenever we do talk about crime, you don't see people who are committing white collar crimes. You very rarely see them going to jail. It's very much, you know, crimes of poverty and crimes of survival that are the ones getting arrested or, of course, uh, nonviolent drug offenses. Mm -hmm. You know, things that are not that that. Uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought there for like one second. But, you know, crimes that are not, you know, crimes against humanity, they're just crimes of survival or crimes of poverty versus people who are actually committing crimes that are detrimental to society, like demolishing our housing, our housing system mm -hmm. and doing all these different crimes like that. Like how many bankers have we seen go to jail? Zero. There was one. There was one. Oh, there was one. Okay. Yeah, there was one. one. In, in, the, in the entire uh, collapse of Wall Street, there was one who went to jail and uh, it didn't seem like he did that very much. That was wrong. 
I mean, there was there was one. Oh, so um, he was he was yeah. a scapegoat then. Yeah, yeah. He, was, I mean, there's always one, right? Yeah, like he was, was a Derek Chauvin. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, I mean, I'm not saying don't write the piece. I'm just saying, yeah. like, um, I think that we always need to be aware that um, these forums, yeah, um, have their own intentions uh, with us, and yeah, yeah they're they, not our allies. Yeah. They're definitely. They're definitely not looking out for our best interests. They're looking out for their own best interests. You're absolutely yeah, right. Yeah. And you can use them, mm-hmm. but you but it's it's hard. It's very hard, actually. Yeah, I'm I'm sure you're speaking from experiences that you have written for like the Washington Post and The Guardian. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've learned I've learned my lessons. It's okay. <laughs> oh goodness. Um but I definitely, so the other thing that I wanted to talk about is where you talk about the difference between safety versus peace, like mm-hmm. safety, because we're seeing a lot of that with like, you know, cancel culture, outrage culture, however you want to describe it. But this idea that we have to be safe from people's words yeah. and that this has become a way of basically pushing people into the margins and saying, you don't, you can't say what you are saying rather than actually fixing the causes of what they're saying. Like we can argue about like Trumpers all we want and like them saying, you know, fascist things, but okay, but why are they saying what they're saying? And people never want to address that. They just want to censor it. And there's so much censorship going on right now, and particularly on social media. Like, how Mm -hmm. are you feeling about all the censorship that's happening, particularly around things like, you know, quote, you know, hate speech, the, even the, the, the vaccines, like how we're just, there's a lot of censorship happening both on the right and the left. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's complicated for me because I don't come from um, the demographics of uh, the people that for the most part are the most powerful on the left. Um, I don't, uh, I come from a rural environment, a very red environment, a very white mm-hmm. uh, and poor environment. Yes. I come from, uh, I didn't go to college. Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. so I don't have a university degree. Mm-hmm. I don't have, uh, you know, various trappings of uh, whatever mm-hmm. the fuck. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so, you know, when people are talking about Trump voters and how you should shun Trump voters, mm-hmm. um, that's like 90% of my family. Like, am right. I, re- am I really expected to like cut out 90% of my family? I mean, I, yeah. for, I mean, they have, I have like quiverful evangelicals in my family. So it's not mm-hmm. like I'm giving, um, a dingling like <laughs> on your average <laughs> Saturday night. I don't have anything to say to these people who only have babies, but, um, but for the most part, like, I don't believe in shunning. I don't believe in, um, I don't believe in, uh, shutting people out from spaces and, um, telling them that their opinions are not valid because they're not perfectly worded. Now Mm -hmm. that does not mean that I believe that you can say hateful things without repercussion whenever Mm -hmm. you want. I, absolutely believe that there should be consequences for certain behaviors. Um, but for a lot of it, 
a lot of the censorship and a lot of the condemnation comes down on these very small choices of language. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, those choices have been made in academic spaces. Um, mm -hmm. And again, like there's, it's not like they, they're calling the Lincoln Sentinel newspaper in my mm -hmm. hometown of 1200 people and being like, excuse me, these are the new appropriate words for these right. specific <laughs> situations. Like, how are they supposed to know? I mean, they only know when I go home and I'm like, it's like, you can't say that anymore, actually. Um, so yeah, but I also come from, you know, um, I have a lot of friends in the comedy scene in Chicago, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is all like dirt bags and mm -hmm. um, like really just horrible working class people. <laughs> I love them so much. Um, all <laughs> dysfunctional alcoholics. Um, and they also, you know, um, they don't use the language, you know. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah. So to me, I have a much more sort of loose engagement with that, and it mm -hmm. worries me when it becomes when it becomes so easy to condemn, um, mm -hmm. especially when the, we're talking about things that um, are so minor in nature. And I, I, I do understand wanting to be accommodated and wanting to feel safe. Mm -hmm. But when your safety interferes with other people's freedom, um, then we have to have, then we have to have a conversation and it's not one way. Right. right? Um, and and to just assume that everybody knows the rules in advance, um, I think is really um, foolish and yeah. very much a part of this sort of uh, academia, urban bubble that the left exists in in this country. Yeah, I mean, I mean as I mentioned earlier, like, you know, I have my bachelor's, my master's. So, I mean, I've definitely been in those circles. So I definitely understand, you know, what what you're where you're coming from. Yeah. because definitely like there are some things i'm like wait so we we're saying that we're saying this now okay and so i definitely yeah. understand where you're coming from um well i think so, part of it is i think part mm -hmm. of it is just like people people who are in these spaces in these spaces where these conversations are happening Mm -hmm. need to understand that their lives are extremely different from just about everybody else's. And I don't think that there's an understanding about that. Um, and I think yeah. that there is this assumption that if their lives are different, that they're worse. That mm -hmm. like, uh, if you don't want to be uh, in New York City, if you don't want to be in college, if you don't want to be um, a professional social media manager or whatever the fuck, that there's something that there's something wrong with you and you deserve the right. circumstances of your existence. Um, and it's not just it's not just about politics. It's about the material existence of, right. of people. The fact that, you know, having a college degree extends your life in this country because it means that you're not exposed to pollutants in the factory that you're working. It means that you're not exposed to um, the, the sort of coping mechanisms of despair because you don't have it. Right. right. So you're not going to die young of an overdose or, um, or because you didn't, you know, break your knee at the Amazon mm -hmm. warehouse. And so I yeah. think that we need to understand that it's not just about intelligence and it's not just about mm -hmm. education. It is about how people right. are allowed to live and how much pain they yes. experience in their lifetime. Yes, 100. I definitely agree with that. Like we, 
definitely has to change the way we see value. And that's, I think that's a huge part of it is that your value is not in, you know, whether you have a degree or whether you have this fancy job or whether you're, you know, sleeping on the sidewalk. Like we all have human value. We need to stop thinking that our value is only in our labor. Yes. Because very much that is how it's seen. And, um, and so of course what we're seeing now more too, with all the precarity of what's happening in the world, particularly with, you know, the millennial generation and the uh, the Zoomer generation coming up is that because you know we're coming of age, having coming of come of age during two horrible recessions, depression. I don't even know if we're in a recession or a depression right now because it yeah. certainly feels like it. Yeah, but you know, there I know so many people my age who have you know these fancy degrees, but have nothing to show for it. Right, nothing. Like I have a master's degree. I don't have a fancy job. I'm I'm on a podcast and I'm a substitute teacher. <laughs> you right. know? And you'll I've still seen this. You'll, yeah. you, you will still live longer and you will yeah. still make more money even if it doesn't seem mm-hmm. like it. And you will experience yeah. less pain. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean it's it's you will have yeah, more community. 100%. You will, you know, all of these things like are related. And I think that oh one hundred percent. Yeah. Because we don't talk to people, we don't understand mm-hmm. that people are living different lives from us. We assume 100%. that our that our situation is a baseline and especially when you know mm-hmm. social media parades all these sort of uh, luxurious lifestyles mm-hmm. uh, in front of us every single day we assume that we're we're at the bottom like you know yeah so yeah no it's it's yeah, really and i think this is one of the things that is so frustrating with feminism mm-hmm. is that i don't know that i don't know that feminism as its own thing has any right to exist anymore like, mm-hmm. I don't think that there's really anything so distinctive um, or that feminism has to offer at this point mm-hmm. that it shouldn't just be folded into a sort of larger leftist pursuit. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the only thing to me that is sort of worth organizing around right now is the lived experience of, of lower classes. Um, yeah. that's because, mm-hmm. because that's, that's where the pain's at. Like you have to go where the pain mm-hmm. is at and you have to try to alleviate it. Um, and it's not with Hillary Clinton she's feeling no pain. Right. Like, <laughs> right. Exactly. The, just because you're a woman doesn't mean you're oppressed necessarily anymore. Um, or that you can't escape your oppression or whatever. So, you know, there needs to be some sort of understanding about what is worth, um, organizing around and fighting for or what are the aims that matter and I don't know that uh, just being a woman is enough anymore no what absolutely 100% like we're not looking for you know equal opportunity oppressors we're not looking for you know just women in corner offices if they're not going to do anything that's going to support the rest of you know all of the rest of us women who are down at the bottom you know just trying to survive Right. Yeah. 100%. And I want to quote something from your book here because I thought it was <laughs> excellent. So not telling the sexist joke does not mean the underlying sexism no longer exists. People just get better at hiding their prejudices. Making racial slurs socially unacceptable has obviously not done anything to create a less racist world as evidenced by the brutal slayings of black men and women by the police force. 
It's unlikely that banning all sexist jokes then will do anything to create a better environment for women. Quick fixes are not enough. Political correctness that is not matched with institutional change is ineffective. Disproportionate punishment does nothing but create resentment and fear. And I feel like that's something that we're definitely seeing like, like with all this, like, you know, picking on like, like, okay, you're, oh, you're an easy target because you're online. So let me pick on you and something that you're saying. So, cause you sound like a misogynist asshole. It, okay, that might feel good in the moment, but that's only one misogynist asshole. We have an entire system yeah. that we need to be dealing with. And so picking on one person at a time isn't going to do anything. Like we need to be taking on the system as a whole. And as you said, you know, we need to be doing that as, you know, a mass, you know, movement of the like the 99%, however you want to call it, of working people. And we need to kind of get, I don't know how we're going to do it like that, but and I think that's one of the problems that we're having on the left is, okay, how, how exactly do we organize? How exactly do we communicate with people who are on the same level that we are? Maybe they may not have the same political views, but we need to be building coalitions in order to work together in order to dismantle the system that is oppressing all of us. Mm -hmm. And I think I see things just slightly different than you in that I still, you know, I see value in the feminist movement mm -hmm. and at least picking up the nuances of, okay, this is how this is oppressing women. But I definitely agree with you that it needs to be as a part of a much larger movement because it's only by all of these movements coming together that we'll ever actually be able to make a difference. Yeah. Um, do you know the work of uh, Shlomo Sand? I'm not familiar now. Uh, he's just a amazing, amazing writer, uh, philosopher, historian mm -hmm. um, in Israel. And I mm. and I spent it's been a very bad week in Israel. Um, <laughs> oh, and boy. then and then I talked to him, and it sort of made everything make sense um, because he talked to me about how the idea that Israel has about why it is oppressing the Palestinians is because mm -hmm. they're not safe right, that the Israelis are not safe, that once Israel is safe, once there's no violence whatsoever, then that we can start talking about civil rights for the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. um, and I was thinking about that so much as how it relates to feminism mm -hmm. and how much it relates to this idea that once women have enough power, once we have enough women in power, uh, whether that be the president or whether that be in, in corporate positions, then, mm -hmm. then we'll focus our attention on mm -hmm. poor people or, you know, then we'll think about like actual abortion accessibility or whatever. Like we just need to get, you know, everybody in, uh, in, and by everybody, of course, it just means it's very sort of small professional class um, into the right place in order to, um, before we can sort of spread it out and give equal rights to all. Um, yeah. Reading, if we're not, if we're doing that, we're never going to achieve peace. Right. No, yeah. it, it, but it never, it never moves on from safety because of course, right. I mean, of course you never, <laughs> there's never a moment where everything is safe and clean and pretty and, and mm -hmm. in its right place, like everything is always fucked in some way right. or another. Um, and so it just becomes this impossible delay. And I think that that's been the history of so much of feminism, particularly from the 80s and 90s, mm -hmm. um, and the disappointments of that um, and the malaise of that. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that because it didn't work for so long and wasn't really doing anything and this sort of being told to be patient, being told to, you know, wait for this day when actual help will arrive. Um, I think it really did sort of do a lot of sort of psychological damage to the feminist movement that we haven't really dealt with yet. And I think that that's why we're so focused on these surface level um, problems of safety and language rather than the material conditions of how we live. No, 100%. And kind of you know, using your Israel uh, analogy is like, yeah, okay, you can be fighting for safety all, as long as you need. But in the meantime, we still have Palestinians dying right, <laughs> from, yeah. from bombs. We still have, you know, homes being destroyed, being destroyed. We have, we still have, even in the United States, we have, we still have tons of people going to jail. We still have people living in poverty. People are losing their homes. We're dealing with a climate crisis that is going to kill millions of people, probably. So, and that's going to displace people. So while you're busy, you know, just putting people into power, we have actual problems that we're dealing with on the ground that you are not facing that yeah yeah and it's also the language that turfs use right against trans women Mm -hmm. that the 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 needs of trans women are so different from the needs of women and women (laughs) have to be women have to be put in Mm -hmm. as a top priority for feminism and then we can address the needs of the trans women rather than seeing that's true the gay movement experience right like yeah. yeah but it really is sort of it's like oh no we're not prejudiced we'll get to you you just have to wait your turn but of course they're never going to get to them because you're you're never going to entirely eliminate domestic violence you're never entirely going to uh, eliminate sexual violence um Mm -hmm. we can create situations that greatly reduce but there's always going to be some fucking psycho right like you you can't eradicate (laughs) you're always gonna have a ted bundy (laughs) you're always gonna have like a glitch in the matrix that just sort of spits out some fucking Mm -hmm. person right so um it's not it's not reasonable and it Mm -hmm. and it's not generous um, and I think that if feminism does have a future, it has to be exclusively in generosity because mm-hmm. it's been very stingy and it's been very, um, focused on the individual and what I can get out of, um, imperfect situation for too long. Right. Absolutely. And I tend to agree with you on that is that it needs to be more of a humanist movement. 100%. Like it, any feminism that exists has to be based in humanism. And, you know, making the human experience better and the fact that we all need to be seeing each other as human beings and understanding that we all have particularly basic necessities that we all need, regardless of, you know, our race, our gender, our sexuality, our nationality. Mm -hmm. We all need certain things out of life. And I think that's definitely the way that we definitely need to be moving forward as a feminist movement. Um, so I definitely think we agree there. Yeah, it's, um, you know, the book that I just finished writing and the next book that I'm pitching are both about men. And it's been, oh, been kind of a relief <laughs> to think about men for a while. It's just like, oh, what about them? Like, I haven't thought about them in 20 years. Maybe I should give them a look. <laughs> See what they're up to. It's not, I mean, it's not that much good, but uh, some of the things, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. But I mean, speaking of men, you know, you make a good point here is that, you know, any feminist movement that exists, you know, we do have to be not men are our problem, as you say, but they are a responsibility that because we're all living under a patriarchy. 
And a lot of this toxic masculinity that we're talking about is not actually a problem with masculinity, but a problem of patriarchy. Yeah. Yeah. Because and a problem with power. Yeah. And a problem with power. Absolutely. And I think that's the thing that we need to be grasping with is that, okay, if we're not making spaces for, as you said, we're making space for women in masculine areas, but we're not making space for men in feminine areas. And I do think we're seeing a little bit of a difference there in, you know, regard to, you know, the fact that James Charles can be, you know, you know the face of a, a makeup campaign. Yeah. So we are seeing like symbolic changes in that area, but definitely we need to be making more space for men to be in feminine spaces, just as we're making space for women in masculine spaces and changing the way that we see both masculinity and femininity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the pandemic obviously created a crisis in domesticity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of different ways. One of which was it really did reveal, I think, to everybody um, who's been blind to this for a long time, that the nuclear family mm-hmm. cannot exist without the exploitation of others, right? Absolutely. Um, with, without the exploitation of, um, uh, especially during the pandemic. I mean, even on a good day, uh, you need child care workers, you need domestic workers, you need, you know, um, various services. I don't know. I don't have children. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure you need some things. Um, but, uh, but you need cl- you know, plastic shit made in China that, you know, like it, mm-hmm. it just it's not a self-contained unit, but we've been thinking of it as as one. Um, mm-hmm. And so what the pandemic did was uh, cut away all of these support systems and mm-hmm. make it clear that the domestic family, the nuclear family does not work. Um, and you saw bad effects of that, including a rise in mm-hmm. um, domestic murders, particularly between, for whatever reason, and I would love to see more writing on this, but obviously this is all just sort of uh, brand new, it just happened, but a rise in sons killing their mothers. Um, wow. But you also I saw- about that. Yeah, I think the study that I that I read was uh, based in the UK, so I don't know if that is actually true about the US, but there was apparently a spike. Um, wow. And there has been uh, an increase in domestic violence emergency calls um, in both the US and the UK. Um, obviously, there's been problems with schooling and education and with women having to leave the workforce because their husbands Mm -hmm. didn't want to zoom educate their child or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so it fell to the mother because that's, you know, that's the sort of baseline gender expectation. Um, so yeah, so I think that this is, this can lead to things like paternal leave, uh, flexible work from home arrangements, um, childcare, uh, subsidized or, uh, or, you know, provided by cities or companies or, you know, other various groups, um, things that feminists have been fighting for, for a long time. And so now it is the opportunity to push for these things because it's so glaringly obvious how necessary they are for just basic functioning, um, of the family. But I don't know. Um, but yeah, you also see increased involvement with men in their families and, um, and that's, you know, sort of, at least conversations about equal caretaking. And that's really lovely and nice, but it doesn't always work out just from a renegotiation of the relationship. You need something sort of systemic to um, back it up. Yeah, 100%. Like, 
I would recommend a great book by uh, T.P. Uh, Bhattacharya called Social Reproduction Theory. Oh, That's sure. Yeah. Excellent. Because social reproduction theory is definitely, you know, you know, talking about all those things that you're referring to is that care work is so much a part of our is it it's an invisible part of our economy. Like like whether it's healthcare, education, you know, how we're raising our kids, like the fact that we are both we are both a a form of production, but we're also reproducing those workers as well and you know caring for those you know future workers mm -hmm. and so social reproduction is so important and the fact that we we do put so much of that on women yeah we really do and it, that's been the even whenever women mothers are out in the workforce and they have enough money guess who they bring in to take care of their household it's other women yeah it's very rarely I mean, that is that yeah. is passed on to men very yeah, good. I mean, there was a, that whole influencer that that got canceled because she um, admitted that she had uh, domestic workers and was totally insane about it on Instagram. But uh, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you do mention a lot that uh, one of the ways that feminism needs to move forward as well is that we need to be reconsidering our relationships and mm -hmm. that, especially in the system that we're currently living in, that power dynamic of you know men and women like it will there will always be some type of imbalance particularly when we're considering that marriage has always been a an institution that is about you know women as property and children as property and this idea of the nuclear family as property and that we're all going to be now individuals within that mm -hmm. and that even when women are fiercely independent there's their lives still eventually end up being okay, how am I going to develop a relationship with a man? Or or even in, you know, same-sex relationships, we have that same dynamic of, okay, well, one one of you has to be more butch than the other. Sure. You know? Yeah. You still have to maintain that heteronormative, you know, power structure, even yeah. though you are, you may both be women or you both may both be men. Like, we still have the idea in our mind, like, oh, one, one person has to have power over the other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is reflected back to us every single day in mm -hmm. our own families, in our TV, in our, and, in, in, you know, in the music that we listen to, everything, everything is sort of like gender school, right? Mm -hmm. um, we don't, we, I know that we like to think that we do, that we sort of um, entirely construct ourselves afresh. Mm -hmm. um, but, but no, I mean, we, we look to these things to tell us what are the parameters within which I should exist. Um, and part of that is gender. And yet you can question it, you can break it, you can dismantle it. Um, but in acting it with other people who are also have been going to gender school for 30 years, <laughs> it's really hard, right? So mm -hmm. everything has to be negotiated. Every sort of relationship changes you. Um, in ways that are both good and bad. Um, everything, you know, when you're dealing with the expectations of others or the needs of others, um, it, everything that you have sort of constructed for yourself, what your idea of yourself or, or your idea of your gender or your idea of what it is that you want or need, um, you know, it comes into conflict uh, as soon as you talk to another person who is already sort of reading you one right. specific way. 
that has nothing that might have nothing to do with you or and all of the work Mm -hmm. that you've done right so right absolutely I mean, you can fall in love, you know, you can spend all, you know, 40 years as a, as a feminist and then like fall in love. And then all of a sudden you're just like, oh, now honey, I'm honey, your yeah. socks. <laughs> do you want me to put them, do you want me to put them in the, you know, like it's, it's really hard because, you know, a pick lot of up your own contest. socks, pick up your socks <laughs> yeah, or something else. Like, you know, how many, how many like leftist podcast girls ended up dating mm-hmm. alt-right neo-fascists, right? Like there were several. <laughs> There were several and they were like, this seems fine. I can, I can change him. <laughs> oh God. I don't think I could ever. <laughs> no, no one can. It's impossible, no. but it, it's really hard. Like, you know, you can decide something and then your unconscious overrides it. And, it, and it, you know, it doesn't mean that that's an excuse. It doesn't mean mm-hmm. go date Richard Spencer. I hear his wife left him. So he's available. Oh, but like, <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, like, like you have to understand the power that this training and messaging has over you, um, that it's easy to think it and it's very hard to enact it in your own life. Yeah, that's very true. So you had mentioned though, that you're from Kansas. Mm -hmm. So, and that that is a fairly conservative area, which is quite ironic because that is the birth, that's the birthplace of the populist movement, as Thomas Frank likes to talk about. Yeah. And that's, you know, so Kansas definitely has a history, you know, of having that populist movement as its base and be able to mobilize for, you know, these this material class interest. Mm-hmm. So what do you think it would take to get Kansas back on? on- um. Yeah. I mean, it's not just, it's not just that it had a populist movement, right? Like they had, they had like a, a communist yeah. feminist uh, magazine called Lucifer for a long time. Oh um, my gosh. I did not know this. I'm going to have to look this up. I know. Like I just, I was doing research about it and I, even I was surprised. Like right. I knew that Kansas had right. radical moments, but my God. Right. Like um, even Wyoming, Wyoming was the first state to let women vote. So yeah. like, there's yeah. so much from the the Midwest that people don't realize, like, oh, they think, oh, this, all the planes, you know, this is all conservative area. Like, no, if you look back in the history, there is a very radical history in the Midwest. That yeah. People don't want to recognize. Yeah. No, I think it's not that I don't think that there that there's like some sort of radical potential in the Midwest. Like, I know I know these people, they're they're absolutely insane. <laughs> I do think, I, I do think, you know, and and I hate Thomas Frank. Um, oh my god! <laughs> like, you know, his "What's the Matter with Kansas" book. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I gave that to my father, uh, and uh, he read he read like the author bio and mm-hmm. saw that he's from Johnson County, and he's like, Johnson County is not Kansas. Um, <laughs> so uh, it's like the, it's the very rich suburbs of Kansas mm-hmm. City. Like, it has nothing to do with actual Kansas. But anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I digress about my father's opinions <laughs> about things. Um, but no, it's, um, I think that um, part of what has swallowed up the uh, radical potential of Kansas in particular is the absolutely hideous um, mm-hmm. agricultural policies of the United States government. Um, mm-hmm. 
and also the the way that it's been taken up by uh, corporate power and greed, mm -hmm. uh, the way that the land has been mistreated. Um, mm -hmm. And we don't have family farms anymore, hardly. We have a suicide epidemic of mm -hmm. farmers in Kansas. Um, wow. We have bank a bankruptcy epidemic. Mm -hmm. um, we have people who are essentially in um, these never ending contracts with these agribusinesses like uh, Tyson mm -hmm. Chicken uh, that are impossible to get that like start with debt and then are impossible to get out of. So um, you have people who are distracted by the material conditions of their own existence. They are, tend to be demonized um, by the left in general. And so, I mean, why would they? Why would they join the left? Like, you know, um, Joe Biden's farming bill is a nightmare for farmers. Um, it, it prefers corporate farms. It has very little aid for family farms and the bankruptcy. It has nothing for mental health services, which are so hard to come by in rural areas. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, why, why, why would they vote Democrat? Like to me, right. it's, it's illogical that they would. And so I think when you have something like Thomas Frank, who's like, these people are not voting in their own interests. I go, yes, they are. Like, yes, they are. <laughs> like, um, it may not look like it to you, but be, you know, because you think of them as like working class losers, but they think of themselves as CEOs and they operate as CEOs of these farms, whether, mm -hmm. you know, even if they're not making any money from it, they are a CEO and the sort of Republican plans for agribusiness tend to be more beneficial. Um, so yeah, I think it's, I think it's silly the way that people talk about, mm -hmm. um, large populations of the United States when they have no idea. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, I, I don't like Thomas Frank. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make sure not to tell him that. Just kidding. <laughs> tell him. If I ever have him that. <laughs> I've met him. I might, I'm like, I probably had too many martinis and told him once, you know. <laughs> that's fun. <laughs> oh. But so do you think it would ever be possible to organize people in Kansas outside of the political du duopoly? Oh, sure. Yeah. No, I think that's that's way more likely than to convert them over to the Democratic Party. Um, I don't I don't think it would I don't think it would even be that hard. I mean, just like really figure out how to re-strategize agriculture um, and allow people to have power over their own lives um, so that they're not sort of just endlessly trying to meet corporate quotas. Um and, mm -hmm. you know, let them treat animals the way that they want to be treated. Like I've seen, I've seen grown men who have never told their children that they love them, like cry mm -hmm. over soil, right? Mm -hmm. Like the misuse of topsoil. I, I've seen men cry over that. Wow. That's um, amazing. Like, these are, you know, I mean, I know that there are greedy assholes everywhere, but for the most part, these are good people who do what they love and have done it for generations and they are being prevented from doing it by corporate greed and by political maneuverings. Um, let them lead lives of their own choosing, for God's sake. I mean, isn't that what politics is supposed to be about? But it's right. just so mismanaged. 
Like the no, whole, I, think, I mean, the whole food system in the United States is a fucking disaster. But uh, in particular, like agricultural um, businesses and corporations are, as far as I'm concerned, like the work of the devil. I think that's very well said. Truly, I think that's very well said. And so, so I think we're getting kind of close to the end of our time here. So, how would you think? How do you think that a feminist movement should go forward? Like if you were to envision a feminist movement that I would that you would be proud to be a part of, what would that feminist movement look like? Um, it would have to include widespread solidarity in a real way, not mm-hmm. not in a we found a black person to be on our board kind of <laughs> way, right? Like not right. not not just like silly. Um, displays of diversity, but real meaningful coalitions across not only uh, demographics and classes, but also mm-hmm. political positions. Um, I think that, that that is incredibly important. Seeing things that are not typically understood as being part of a feminist agenda, whether that be um, healthcare mm-hmm. or whether that be agriculture, um, it's important to incorporate ideas into those sorts of ideas into our agenda as well, because everything, the, the entire system is organized. It's, it's organized for acquisition and and it's organized for manipulation and it's organized for like sucking, you know, money out of, out of communities and uh, organizations and, and whatever. So redistribution, um, decentralization. These are ideas that I'm very interested in right now. Um, and it re envisioning these systems that have been, um, allowed to do whatever they want without question, whether that's the healthcare industry, um, which is, you know, racist and misogynistic and uncaring and profit oriented, mm-hmm. or, you know, even entertainment, which is now just run by the media is now just like legacy kids. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's where if you're the son of a banker, like you go to dabble, um, yeah, every, everything matters, like everything matters. And so a really big project of imagination, I think is the only thing that uh, would interest me at this moment. Now, I love everything that you just said. And <laughs> I think that's a great place to, you know, end this discussion. It's been such a pleasure having you here. Like, I loved this discussion. Thank and you're you. definitely welcome back anytime. Anytime. So, <laughs> so please let my audience know, you know, where they can go to follow you and support you. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, jessacrispin.com has all the various things, podcasts and other writings and everything. So that's a good place to start. <laughs> yeah. And again, so those of you who are listening or watching, so the book again, that way you can go and read it because it is an excellent read. That is Why I Am Not a Feminist, A Feminist Manifesto by Jessica Crispin. Definitely go check that out. It is an, it's a fabulous read. I truly enjoyed it. And I felt I found myself nodding over and over and over again. Like, yes, yes, yes. That's that's an excellent point. Yes. Yes, that. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> so definitely kudos on it's such an excellent book I'll, I'll definitely keep an eye out for your next books coming out in your next adventures and definitely check out her podcast public intellectual all right uh jessa it's been such a pleasure having you here uh, Thank I'm going to so put, put you in the green in the green room for just a second. But definitely, thank you so much for coming on. It's been such a pleasure having you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Killjoy Guide, a weekly left feminist podcast for the 99%. Please rate and review The Killjoy Guide on your favorite podcasting platforms. You can support the show through Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash killjoyguide. Anchor.fm slash killjoyguide. See you, Killjoys, next time.